Section 23 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 12. Decay and Fall of the Carlovingians. Part 3. On arriving at Angiers, Louis found the Empress Hermengarde dying, and two days afterwards she was dead. He had a tender heart, which was not proof against sorrow, and he testified a desire to abdicate and turn monk. But he was dissuaded from his purpose, for it was easy to influence his resolutions. A little later he was advised to marry again, and he yielded. Several princesses were introduced, and he chose Judith of Bavaria, daughter of Count Welf, or Guelph a family already powerful and in later times celebrated. Judith was young, beautiful, witty, ambitious, and skilled in the art of making the gift of pleasing subserve the passion for ruling. Louis, during his expedition into Brittany, had just witnessed the fatal result of a woman's empire over her husband. He was destined himself to offer a more striking and more long-lived example of it. In 823 he had, by his new Empress Judith, a son, whom he called Charles, and who was hereafter to be known as Charles the Bald. This son became his mother's ruling, if not exclusive passion, and the source of his father's woes. His birth could not fail to cause ill-temper and mistrust in Louis's three sons by Hermingard, who were already kings. They had but a short time previously received the first proof of their father's weakness. In 822, Louis, repenting of his severity towards his nephew, Bernard of Italy, whose eyes he had caused to be put out as a punishment for rebellion, and who had died in consequence, considered himself bound to perform at Attigny, in the church and before the people, a solemn act of penance, which was creditable to his honesty and piety, but the details left upon the minds of the beholders an impression unfavourable to the emperor's dignity and authority. In 829, during an assembly held at Verme, he, yielding to his wife's entreaties, and doubtless to his own yearnings towards his youngest son, said it not the solemn act whereby, in 817, he had shared his dominions amongst his three elder sons, and took away from two of them, in Burgundy and Alemannia, some of the territories he had assigned to them, and gave them to the boy Charles for his share. Lothair, Pepin, and Louis thereupon revolted. Court rivalries were added to family differences, the emperor had summoned to his side a young Southron, Bernard by name, Duke of Septimania, and son of Count William of Toulouse, who had gallantly fought the Saracens. He made him his chief chamberlain and his favorite counsellor. Bernard was bold, ambitious, vain, imperious, and restless. He removed his rivals from court, and put in their places his own creatures. He was accused not only of abusing the emperor's favor, but even of carrying on a guilty intrigue with the Empress Judith. There grew up against him, and by consequence against the Emperor, the Empress, and their youngest son, a powerful opposition, in which certain ecclesiastics, and amongst them Vala, abbot of Corby, cousin German, but lately one of the privy councillors of Charlemagne, joined eagerly. Some had at heart the unity of the Empire, which Louis was breaking up more and more, Others were concerned for the spiritual interests of the church, which Louis, in spite of his piety and by reason of his weakness, often permitted to be attacked. Thus strengthened, the conspirators considered themselves certain of success. They had the Empress Judith carried off and shut up in the convent of St. Redagon at Poitiers, 
and Louis in person came to deliver himself up to them at Compagna, where they were assembled. There they passed a decree to the effect that the power and title of emperor were transferred from Louis to Lothair, his eldest son, that the act whereby a share of the empire had been but lately assigned to Charles was annulled, and that the act of 817, which had regulated the partition of Louis's dominions after his death, was once more in force. But soon there was a burst of reaction in favour of the emperor. Lothair's two brothers, jealous of his late elevation, made overtures to their father. The ecclesiastics were a little ashamed at being mixed up in a revolt. The people felt pity for the poor, honest emperor, and a general assembly, meeting at Nimeguen, abolished the acts of Campania, and restored to Louis his title and his power. But it was not long before there was a revolt again, originating this time with Pepin, king of Aquitaine. Louis fought him, and gave Aquitaine to Charles the Bald. The alliance between the three sons of Hermengard was at once renewed, they raised an army, the emperor marched against them with his, and the two hosts met between Colmar and Bale, in a place called Le Champ Rouge, the Field of Red. Negotiations were set on foot, and Louis was called upon to leave his wife Judith and his son Charles, and put himself under the guardianship of his elder sons. He refused, but just when the conflict was about to commence, desertion took place in Louis's army. Most of the prelates, laics, and men-at-arms who had accompanied him passed over to the camp of Lothair, and the field of red became the field of falsehood, le champ du messange. Louis, left almost alone, ordered his attendants to withdraw, being unwilling, he said, that any one of them should lose life or limb on his account, and surrendered to his sons. They received him with great demonstrations of respect, but without relinquishing the prosecution of their enterprise. Lothair hastily collected an assembly, which proclaimed him emperor, with the addition of diverse territories to the kingdoms of Aquitaine and Bavaria, and three months afterwards another assembly, meeting at Copenhagen, declared the emperor Louis to have forfeited the crown, for having, by his faults and incapacity, suffered to sink so sadly low the empire which had been raised to grandeur and brought into unity by Charlemagne and his predecessors. Louis submitted to this decision, himself read out aloud, in the church of St. Medard at Soissons, but not quite unresistingly, a confession in eight articles of his faults, and laying his baldric upon the altar, stripped off his royal robe, and received from the hands of Ebo, archbishop of Rheims, the grey vestment of a penitent. Lothair considered his father dethroned for good, and himself henceforth sole emperor, but he was mistaken. For six years longer the scenes which have just been described kept repeating themselves again and again. Rivalries and secret plots began once more between the three victorious brothers and their partisans. Popular feeling revived in favour of Louis. A large portion of the clergy shared it. Several counts of Neustria and Burgundy appeared in arms in the name of the deposed emperor, and the seductive and able Judith came afresh upon the scene, and gained over to the cause of her husband and her son a multitude of friends. In 834, two assemblies, one meeting at Saint-Denis and the other at Thionville, annulled all the acts of the assembly of Compagne, and for the third time put Louis in possession of the imperial title and power. He displayed no violence in his use of it, but he was growing more and more irresolute and weak. When, in 838, the second of his rebellious sons, Pepin, king of Aquitaine, died suddenly, Louis, ever under the sway of Judith, speedily convoked at Worms, in 839, once more and for the last time a general assembly, whereat, leaving his son Louis of Bavaria reduced to his kingdom in eastern Europe, 
he divided the rest of his dominions into two nearly equal parts, separated by the course of the Meuse and the Rhone. Between these two parts he left the choice to Lothair, who took the eastern portion, promising at the same time to guarantee the western portion to his younger brother Charles. Louis the Germanic protested against this partition, and took up arms to resist it. His father the emperor set himself in motion towards the Rhine, to reduce him to submission, but on arriving close to Mayence, he caught a violent fever, and died on the 20th of June, 840, at the castle of Ingelheim, on a little island in the river. His last acts were a fresh proof of his goodness towards even his rebellious sons, and of his solicitude for his last-born. He sent to Louis the Germanic his pardon, and to Lothair the golden crown and sword, at the same time bidding him fulfil his father's wishes on behalf of Charles and Judith. There is no telling whether, in the credulousness of his good nature, Louis had at his dying hour any great confidence in the appeal he made to his son Lothair, and in the impression which would be produced on his other son, Louis of Bavaria, by the pardon bestowed. The prayers of the dying are of little avail against violent passions and barbaric manners. Scarcely was Louis the debonair dead, when Lothair was already conspiring against young Charles, and was in secret alliance, for his despoilment, with Pepin the second, the late king of Aquitaine's son, who had taken up arms for the purpose of seizing his father's kingdom, in the possession of which his grandfather Louis had not been pleased to confirm him. Charles suddenly learning that his mother Judith was on the point of being besieged in Poitiers by the Aquitanians, and in spite of the friendly protestations sent to him by Lothair, it was not long before he discovered the plot formed against him. He was not wanting in shrewdness or energy, and having first provided for his mother's safety, he set about forming an alliance, in the cause of their common interests, with his other brother, Louis the Germanic, who was equally in danger from the ambition of Lothair. The historians of the period do not say what negotiator was employed by Charles, on this distant and delicate mission, but several circumstances indicate that the Empress Judith herself undertook it, that she went in quest of the King of Bavaria, and that it was she who, with her accustomed grace and address, determined him to make common cause with his younger against their eldest brother. Diverse incidents retarded for a whole year the outburst of this family plot, and of the war of which it was the precursor. The position of the young King Charles appeared for some time a very bad one, but certain chieftains, says the historian Nithard, faithful to his mother and to him, and having nothing more to lose than life or limb, chose rather to die gloriously than to betray their king. The arrival of Louis the Germanic with his troops helped to swell the forces and increase the confidence of Charles, and it was on the 21st of June, 841, exactly a year after the death of Louis the Debonair, that the two armies, that of Lothair and Pepin on the one side, and that of Charles the Bald and Louis the Germanic on the other, stood face to face in the neighbourhood of the village of Fontenay, six leagues from Auxerre, on the rivulet of the Audres. Never, according to such evidence as is forthcoming, since the battle on the plains of Chalons against the Huns, and that of Poitiers against the Saracens, had so great masses of men been engaged. There would be nothing untruth-like, says that scrupulous authority, M. Ferriel, in putting the whole number of combatants at three hundred thousand, and there is nothing to show that either of the two armies was much less numerous than the other. However that may be, the leaders hesitated for four days to come to blows, and whilst they were hesitating, the old favourite, not only of Louis the Debonair, but also, according to several chroniclers, of the Empress Judith, 
held himself aloof with his troops in the vicinity, having made equal promise of assistance to both sides, and, waiting, to govern his decision, for the prospect afforded by the first conflict. The battle began on the 25th of June at daybreak, and was at first in favour of Lothair, but the troops of Charles the Bald recovered the advantage which had been lost by Louis the Germanic, and the action was soon nothing but a terribly simple scene of carnage between enormous masses of men, charging hand to hand, again and again, with a front extending over a couple of leagues. Before midday the slaughter, the plunder, the spoliation of the dead, all was over. The victory of Charles and Louis was complete. The victors had retired to their camp, and there remained nothing on the field of battle but corpses in thick heaps, or a long line, according as they had fallen in the disorder of flight or steadily fighting in their ranks. "'Accursed be this day!' cries Engelbert, one of Lothair's officers, in rough Latin. "'Be it unnumbered in the return of the year, but wiped out of all remembrance. Be it unlit by the light of the sun. Be it without either dawn or twilight. Accursed also be this night, this awful night in which fell the brave, the most expert in battle. I ne'er has seen more fearful slaughter. In streams of blood fell Christian men.' The linen vestments of the dead did whiten the champagne, even as it is whitened by the birds of autumn. In spite of this battle, which appeared a decisive one, Lothair made zealous efforts to continue the struggle. He scoured the countries wherein he hoped to find partisans. To the Saxons he promised the unrestricted re-establishment of their pagan worship, and several of the Saxon tribes responded to his appeal. Louis the Germanic and Charles the Bald, having information of these preliminaries, resolved to solemnly renew their alliance, and seven months after their victory at Fontenay, in February 842, they repaired, both of them, each with his army, to Argentaria, on the right bank of the Rhine, between Bale and Strasbourg, and there, at an open-air meeting, Louis I, addressing the chieftains about him in the German tongue, said, Ye all know how often, since our father's death, Lothair hath attacked us, in order to destroy us, this my brother and me. Having never been able, as brothers and Christians, or in any just way, to obtain peace from him, we were constrained to appeal to the judgment of God. Lothair was beaten and retired, whither he could, with his following, for we, restrained by paternal affection and moved with compassion for Christian people, were unwilling to pursue them to extermination. Neither then nor aforetime did we demand aught else save that each of us should be maintained in his rights. But he, rebelling against the judgment of God, ceaseth not to attack us as enemies, this my brother and me, and he destroyeth our peoples with fire and pillage and the sword. That is the cause which hath united us afresh, and as we trove that ye doubt the soundness of our alliance and our fraternal union, we have resolved to bind ourselves afresh by this oath in your presence, being led thereto by no prompting of wicked covetousness, but only that we may secure our common advantage in case that, by your aid, God should cause us to obtain peace. If then I violate, which, God forbid, this oath that I am about to take to my brother, I hold you all quit of submission to me, and of the faith ye have sworn to me. Charles repeated this speech, word for word, to his own troops, in the Romance language, in that idiom derived from a mixture of Latin and of the tongues of ancient Gaul, and spoken, thenceforth, with varieties of dialect and pronunciation, in nearly all parts of Frankish Gaul. After this address, Louis pronounced, and Charles repeated after him, each in his own tongue, the oath couched in these terms. 
for the love of God, for the Christian people, and for our common weal, from this day forth, and so long as God shall grant me power and knowledge, I will defend this my brother, and will be an aid to him in everything, as one ought to defend his brother, provided that he do no likewise unto me. And I will never make with Lothair any covenant which may be, to my knowledge, to the damage of this my brother. When the two brothers had thus sworn, the two armies, officers and men, took in their turn a similar oath, going bail in a mass for the engagements of their kings. Then they took up their quarters, all of them, for some time, between Verm and Mienz, and followed up their political proceedings with military fetes, precursors of the knightly tournaments of the Middle Ages. A place of meeting was fixed, says the contemporary historian Nithard, at a spot suitable for this kind of exercises. Here were drawn up, on one side, a certain number of combatants, Saxons, Vasconians, Austrasians, or Britons. There were two ranged on the opposite side, an equal number of warriors, and the two divisions advanced, each against the other, as if to attack. One of them, with their bucklers at their backs, took to flight, as if to seek in the main body shelter against those who were pursuing them. Then, suddenly, facing about, they dashed in pursuit of those before whom they had just been flying. This sport lasted until the two kings, appearing with all the youth of their suits, rode up at a gallop, brandishing their spears and chasing first one lot and then the other. It was a fine sight to see so much temper amongst so many valiant folks, for great as were the number and the mixture of different nationalities, no one was insulted or maltreated, though the contrary is often the case amongst men in small numbers and known to one another. After four or five months of tentative measures, or of incidents which taught both parties that they could not, either of them, hope to completely destroy their opponents, the two allied brothers received at Verdun, whither they had repaired to concert their next movement, a messenger from Lothair, with peaceful proposals which they were unwilling to reject. The principle was that, with the exception of Italy, Aquitaine, and Bavaria, to be secured without dispute to their then-possessors, the Frankish Empire should be divided into three portions, that the arbiters elected to preside over the partition should swear to make it as equal as possible, and that Lothair should have his choice, with the title of emperor. About mid-June, 842, the three brothers met on an island of the Saone, near Chalon, where they began to discuss questions which divided them. But it was not till more than a year after, in August, 843, that assembling all three of them, with their umpires at Verdun, they at last came to an agreement about the partition of the Frankish Empire, save the three countries which it had been beforehand agreed to accept. Louis kept all the provinces of Germany, of which he was already in possession, and received, besides, on the left bank of the Rhine, the towns of Mayence, Worm, and Spire, with the territory appertaining to them. Lothair, for his part, had the eastern belt of Gaul, bounded on one side by the Rhine and the Alps, on the other by the courses of the Meuse, the Saone, and the Rhone, starting from the confluence of the two latter rivers, and further the country comprised between the Meuse and the Scheldt, together with certain countships lying to the west of that river. To Charles fell the rest of Gaul, Vasconia, or Biscayne, Septimania, the marches of Spain, beyond the Pyrenees, and the other countries of southern Gaul which had enjoyed hitherto, under the title of the Kingdom of Aquitaine, a special government subordinated to the general government of the empire, but distinct from it, lost this last remnant of their Gallo-Roman nationality, and became integral portions of Frankish Gaul, which fell by partition to Charles the Bald, 
and formed one and the same kingdom under one and the same king. Thus fell through and disappeared, in 843, by virtue of the Treaty of Verdun, the second of Charlemagne's grand designs, the resuscitation of the Roman Empire by means of the Frankish and Christian masters of Gaul. The name of emperor still retained a certain value in the minds of the people, and still remained an object of ambition to princes, but the empire was completely abolished, and in its stead sprang up three kingdoms, independent one of another, without any necessary connection or relation. One of the three was thenceforth France. In this great event are comprehended two facts, the disappearance of the empire and the formation of the three kingdoms which took its place. The first is easily explained. The resuscitation of the Roman Empire had been a dream of ambition and ignorance on the part of a great man, but a barbarian. Political unity and central absolute power had been the essential characteristics of that empire. They became introduced and established, through a long succession of ages, on the ruins of the splendid Roman Republic, destroyed by its own dissensions, under favor of the still great influence of the old Roman Senate, though fallen from its high estate, and beneath the guardianship of the Roman legions and imperial praetorians. Not one of these conditions, not one of these forces, was to be met with in the Roman world reigned over by Charlemagne. The nation of the Franks and Charlemagne himself were but of yesterday. The new emperor had neither ancient senate to hedge at the same time that it obeyed him, nor old bodies of troops to support him. Political unity and absolute power were repugnant alike to the intellectual and to the social condition, to the national manners and personal sentiments of the victorious barbarians. The necessity of placing their conquests beyond the reach of a new swarm of barbarians, and the personal ascendancy of Charlemagne, were the only things which gave his government a momentary gleam of success, in the way of unity and of factious despotism under the name of empire. In 814 Charlemagne had made territorial security an accomplished fact, but the personal power he had exercised disappeared with him. The new Gallo-Frankish community recovered, under the mighty but gradual influence of Christianity, its proper and natural course, producing disruption into different local communities and bold struggles for individual liberties, either one with another, or against whosoever tried to become their master. As for the second fact, the formation of the three kingdoms which were the issue of the Treaty of Verdun, various explanations have been given of it. This distribution of certain peoples of Western Europe into three distinct and independent groups, Italians, Germans, and French, has been attributed at one time to a diversity of histories and manners, at another to geographical causes and to what is called the rule of natural frontiers, and oftener still to a spirit of nationality and to differences of language. Let none of these causes be gainsaid. They all exercised some sort of influence, but they are all incomplete, in themselves, and far too redolent of theoretical system. It is true that Germany, France, and Italy began, at that time, to emerge from the chaos into which they had been plunged by barbaric invasion and the conquests of Charlemagne, and to form themselves into quite distinct nations. But there were in each of the kingdoms of Lothair, of Louis the Germanic, and of Charles the Bold, populations widely differing in race, language, manners, and geographical affinity, and it required many great events and the lapse of many centuries to bring about the degree of national unity they now possess. To say nothing touching the agency of individual and independent forces, which is always considerable, although so many men of intellect ignore it in the present day, what would have happened had any one of the three new kings, Lothair, or Louis the Germanic, or Charles the Bald, 
been a second Charlemagne, as Charlemagne had been a second Charles Martel. Who can say that, in such a case, the three kingdoms would have taken the form they took in 843? Happily, or unhappily, it was not so. None of Charlemagne's successors was capable of exercising on the events of his time, by virtue of his brain and his own will, any notable influence. Not that they were all unintelligent, or timid, or indolent. It has been seen that Louis the Debonair did not lack virtues and good intentions, and Charles the Bald was clear-sighted, dexterous, and energetic. He had a taste for information and intellectual distinction. He liked and sheltered men of learning and letters, and to such purpose that, instead of speaking, as under Charlemagne, of the school of the palace, people called the palace of Charles the Bald the palace of the school. Amongst the eleven kings who after him ascended the Carlovigian throne, several, such as Louis the Third and Carloman especially, several, such as Louis the Third and Carloman, and especially Louis the Ultramarine, d'Outremer, and Lothaire, displayed on several occasions energy and courage, and the kings elected at this epoch, without the pale of the Carlovingian dynasty, Eudes in 887 and Raoul in 923, gave proofs of a valour both discreet and effectual. The Carlovingians did not, as the Merovingians did, end in monkish retirement or shameful inactivity, even the last of them, and the only one termed sluggard, Louis V, was getting ready when he died for an expedition in Spain against the Saracens. The truth is that, mediocre or undecided or addle-pated as they may have been, they all succumbed, internally and externally, without initiating and without resisting, to the course of events, and that in 987 the fall of the Carlovingian line was the natural and easily accomplished consequence of the new social condition which had been preparing in France under the empire. End of chapter 12